This episode is supported by Enscape, empowering your design workflow by turning your BIM model into an immersive 3D experience. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. Just a bit of housekeeping before I introduce the guest for this episode. There have been some fantastic conversations on here lately, so if you've missed any episodes, I encourage you to definitely go back and check them out. As always, you can see the entire list of the shows at trxl.co slash ted. That's trxl.co slash ted. In this episode, I welcome Andrea Kajokaru, who is the co-founder and CEO at Numina, which is an interdisciplinary design studio of coding architects that design and program spatial experiences both in the physical and the virtual realities. So if you're thinking, what? Don't worry. You'll hear more about it in the show. I have to say, this was one of my favorite conversations. I'm not sure what it was exactly, whether it was the way Andrea pushes at the status quo we find our profession struggling with, maybe the depth at which she's approaching the topic of synthetic immersive reality, her background and current interest in neuroscience and philosophy, or the value that she's found in the struggle of being the CEO at a startup in AEC. Honestly, it was likely a combination of all of it. So I won't belabor the intro anymore. This was a fantastic conversation that went deep, which we strive to do. So without further ado, I bring you Andrea Kajokaru. Andrea, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you and and have you here. Likewise, thank you for inviting me. I've been intrigued with the the things that you've been publishing about VR, and this is the first time VR has come up on the show, virtual reality. Funny enough, I I used to teach a emerging technology class at the architecture school, which is where I graduated from, but also it's local to me. And I did a week on VR and it was, you know, back in the day when I was in school, there were basically three different tracks of profession for architecture. There was design, which was what my school taught. So basically there was one track at my school that they talked about. Then there was, there's project management and then there's kind of the technical, you know, architect, architect side of things. And now there's so many different things you can do in architecture. And that's, I guess, what's intriguing to me about you and I think maybe to the audience is how you've really focused on VR, virtual reality, on your side of the practice of architecture. And I'm wondering if you could just give us kind of some of that background, how you got there, and and we'll take it from there after that. Yeah, definitely. So I am... Formerly trained as an architect, and I practiced for several years in New York in some big architecture companies. However, I've had many other kinds of careers and interests in the past. I've studied math and physics and competed in those. I've been a bronze sculptor. I've studied philosophy. I've done coding. A lot of different interests Going for an architecture uh, career was is sometimes what these kind of people do that have such a rich background that bridges, you know, certain more technical fields and artistic fields. So architecture simultaneously felt right, but there were many big frustrations uh, within the actual study and practice of architecture. So after after working for some companies, I've decided that perhaps the problem is not them, it's me. Although <laughs> in retrospect, the problem was them as well. <laughs> sure. And that I, to, to be able to, to find the kind of things I was craving, I just had to, I had to have my own company. 
and I, I, I had to have the, the kind of freedom that only the big sacrifice of trying to run your own company or studio can offer. So where I am today, I, I run a studio in Germany of coding architects. And we use VR, including a VR platform that we're coding ourselves as the central point of our methodology for designing architecture projects. Interesting. And so maybe give us an idea of where did that, at what point in your career did that spark to, to make that decision happen? Like what was it that was just like, this is the way for you? So I will tell you the little story of how exactly that happened. So I, I had moved from New York where I was working for a big company doing very, very big projects. Um, I thought I, I needed a change. I thought, and, and I moved to Europe. I was working as the lead designer and project manager on the cutest little project in downtown Prague, the cutest little, the cutest town in Europe. Um, and I thought I was going to be happier. I wasn't quite that happy. And one day, I got an invitation to go check out a VR studio in, this was in Stuttgart, Germany. I put on these VR goggles and luckily for me, they were not cardboard. They were a developer kit of very high quality. And the kind of potential that I saw in there struck me with such force that three weeks later, I quit my job. Wow. It felt like everything I've been looking for. It sounds extremely uto utopian, and for the for the people who know me, they know I'm 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 definitely not a dreamer and an idealist. I'm very skeptical about things. I'm rarely impressed by anything. But this thing was basically the intersection of many things that I have been trying to put together my whole life. It was it it was a simulated reality. It was a spatial simulated reality. And when I realized that humanity has invented that, that for me was such a monumental fact that I could not, I, I just couldn't go another day doing anything else. Wow. So, and, and I knew at the core of it, aside from the uniqueness of this historical moment that we have synthetic immersive reality, I realized that you need two things to produce it. You need to understand spatial design. You need to have a way to produce space in a digital format. As an architect, I could do that. And then you needed to be able to code behaviors on top of that. And, and I knew a little bit of, of coding. Interesting. Wow. That sounds, I think a lot of people when they, they think about, or before they've been introduced to VR, they think it's going to be something. And then when they actually put the goggles on, many times it's something entirely different. They didn't realize how real it can feel. And I, I've, I think I've even talked about this story on the podcast before, but it's worth bringing up is with you to kind of hear what you think about it. But I worked with a, a an experienced, you know, call him a gray hair mentor like design principal for a long time who kind of wrote it off. And I think as many people do who are, you know, not open to new technologies or prefer to just keep doing things the way they they do them and we we had deployed some various VR stations throughout the office and once the VR stations made it into the design studio rather than being another place you went to in the office, because if it's kind of out of sight, it's out of mind, right? It wasn't one of those tools that you really see as being readily available if it's not right there, like it, like when you're sitting at a computer or if you're standing collaboratively working at a table with other people that sit around you or whatever. It's just not that kind of tool when it's off uh, somewhere else that you have to go to. And, and then you have to worry about like, how do you get your files there? And do I have all the files and how do I know how to load them up? Okay. So it makes a huge difference immediately just to put the VR station right where the people are working. But 
nowadays you can just do it at your desk, right? Like it's, it's, you just pop the goggles on and you're in it's, it's very different even now than it was a few years ago. But when he always saw other people doing it and kind of imagined what their experience was and, and how it didn't meet his expectations, even though he had never done it before. And then the one day he did it, finally, finally got in a, got up enough, whatever it took to, to get in and put the goggles on. It was like, holy crap. This is because you don't really, when you're looking at a screen and you're building models on a screen in 2d, it's a 3d representation on a 2d screen. It's, and you're, you're 30,000 feet above the model and you're spinning it around. And sometimes you stand on the ground and sometimes you don't, it's very different than when you put on the goggles and you are in the space at one-to-one. That is a very, and your mind doesn't even care if it's photo real or not. Right. I think that was another thing where it was like, oh, well, it's just flat shaded geometry and maybe there's some shadows and maybe there's some ambient occlusion to kind of help make it feel more real. But all of that technology was kind of in transition at that point still. And so it didn't feel real enough for them to really see a value in getting into it yet. But once they did, it didn't matter. That stuff, all of that stuff went away. And now it was like, I am in that space. And and it gets to the point where you take the goggles off and you're disappointed that you're not in the space that you just designed anymore and that you're hopefully going to deliver to clients to solve their building needs and their long-term goals. I think you've said it. it. This is another version of reality. It is reality. It might be digital, but it's just another version of reality. And and what's interesting to me is like how it can trick the mind. I mean, I don't know if trick's the right word, but you feel like you're there. And and then it was a valuable tool for that person from then on. But it kind of took that first time to prove it. And like you said, I'm glad it wasn't cardboard the first time I did it, because that's a very different experience. The you know Google Cardboard and everybody who copied that after that, where you can slap your phone into there and get some kind of a VRE experience, is not the same as 90 frames per second at 1024 by, you know, 19 you know, HD resolution in each eye, that's a very different experience than, and it took a while to get there too. I think these are all points worth bringing up. Have have you had that experience too with people where they're like, they, you know, they kind of write it off and then, and then once they try it, they're like, whoa, this is way different than what I thought it, what it could do to me. Yeah, totally. And something, something, whenever, I witness people having that reaction or that initial reluctance and then they they turn around. I remember something that uh, um, a professor of mine used to say when I was in grad school, Peter Eisenman was my theory teacher. Mm. And I was very struck when one time he said, there are two buildings. There's the building I design and then there's the building you go into. And that was so striking because this is the father of using rationality and very rational principles into architecture and straightening out the phenomenology of architecture. So this is someone that would go into talks with someone like Peter Tumtor, who was on the wrong side of architecture because we know we were the rationalists fighting the phenomenologists Mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s. And this guy makes this comment in class. There's the building I design and there's the building I go into and they're not the same. So he gives away the phenomenology of buildings that he never acknowledged publicly <laughs> or in any of his work. <laughs> you, so that's VR. That's yeah. that, that, that other building is what's revealed to you when you go in in VR and you have that feeling that you're there. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that, this really starts to get into the experience of VR. And you, you, you had a really funny post on LinkedIn recently about other words for experience. And I'm saying that with my, my podcasting air quotes, because it's, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. So we talk about the immersive experience of VR and it's, it's kind of feels like uh, marketing. So, so you had some other funny names. I, I want to go through a few of them. You, you had the insidious deceit of senses. <laughs> you had, oh, sweet treachery, <laughs> evolutionary extortion of evolution, 
I like this one, cognitive tomfoolery, the realignment of subjectivity, the neural entanglement of the real, and sensorial balderdash, and immersive transcendence. Why, why did you write that? Like, what, where's that coming from? I got tired of the word experience. Yeah. <laughs> I got tired of everyone throwing this thing around. And I thought it was like, it's, it's cheapening what's actually happening. So I'm only half joking about these words. Right. I'm trying to mix in some terms that are quite serious and, and full of philosophical meaning and tradition. Mm-hmm. Like I'm pulling some words out of, you know, the Kantian tradition and so on. But I'm trying to be a little bit playful and markety yeah, about it. Right. Just opening up the the opening up the meaning. I feel like people sometimes need a little bit of help and a little bit of. I believe this idea that if you're a good marketer, you can make people understand everything easily has limits to it. No, nothing that's good will come easily to you, no matter how smart you are, no matter how good the video editing is. Mm-hmm. So I'm part of my work on social media is a little bit about fighting this this uh, this flow of 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 in the way we we talk about things like I believe I believe there's struggle in in there's value in struggling with things I believe we do not do that enough individually but also collectively as architects. I recently saw a quote that said, if, if a challenge comes easy, you're probably doing it wrong. You know, <laughs> it's not challenging, right? The whole, it's in the word, it's in the definition, right? It's a challenge. It, it, it's, it's interesting to think about that because the typically the, I mean, even with this, like VR has been kind of this shiny lure or, you know, it's got it's got a lot of hype behind it and the promise of it and what it can do. And now we're seeing a lot of that start to play out with metaverse and Facebook changing its name to meta. And, you know, that the idea of people spending big amounts of time with the fanny pack on their face, um, that that's how we lovingly called it. Like to go back to your funny names of, you know, Oh sweet treachery. Like we would say, you know, it's time to put the fanny pack on your face and, and go into VR. It, it's interesting to think about how, much of a mindset shift this is. This is such a huge change in the process of the design of buildings. And design documentation is an abstraction of the building. It's a way to communicate design. It's a way to communicate potentially how it goes together. But it's it's very abstracted. And that's why so many people, clients that we talk to as designers don't understand in any way, not trained to, they might nod their head because they want to be perceived as understanding a a floor plan or an elevation or, but again, these are abstractions. Nobody's ever going to experience a building like that, but yet these are the tools we use to communicate. And yes, the the grand purpose of those is to get a permit and, and construction, but it's not, it doesn't convey the experience. And that's what we're talking about here is using, I think, VR. I mean, maybe you've added to this because you guys actually design in VR, which I would love to talk about. But as a way to communicate a design to somebody who doesn't understand our language as architects. And and to me, that was the best part of the process. Other really cool things came out of it later, which was actually people realizing that they could make decisions and use this as a tool instead of just a communication device to clients, but actually use it as a tool during the design process. But putting a client into VR, I, to me, was super valuable, not only for their benefit, but for mine to see what they want to experience and to see what they oppose. I mean, one of the things that when, when you, there, it forces an honesty when you do something in VR, because even if they're wearing a tethered headset, they get to look wherever they want. That's what I mean by it forces an honesty. You kind of, back in the day when we used to do renderings, we would choose the view that they saw, whether it was interior or exterior. And a lot of times you would never model anything behind the point of view of the camera. But now, if you can look wherever you want, you don't want to be as an architect in a position of saying, yeah, I didn't build that yet, 
right? <laughs> the reason it doesn't exist is because I didn't have enough time. Like, you never want to be in that position to have to say that. So it forces some level of at least build out the entire space so that they can look wherever they want and go wherever they want. And then you can watch them as more of like from a scientific point of view and say, what can I get out of, what are they going to communicate to me by experiencing it this way that I wouldn't have gotten if they are looking at this on, on a set of plans? Yeah, you've explained it perfectly. I would say, I, I think there are three areas of interest for me when it comes to VR and architecture. You've perfectly explained one of them. The other two that I would add so the first one, what you said is communication, mm-hmm. basically, and, and how being way better at that and eliminating abstraction almost entirely, not completely, but almost, and we're getting closer and closer. So basically, we are going down the abstraction ladder. The two, so that's one area, communication and, and lowering the level of abstraction. The other two areas uh, that we are experimenting with and even writing the tools to allow us to go further into this this experimentation are the following. One is when Peter Eisenman said there are two buildings, there's the one I design and then there's the one I walk into. There's a corollary to that. That, me- that implies that not just that there are two buildings, it also implies that there's two yous. Mm-hmm. There's the rational you that designs things either with the power of the pencil from an all-powerful, all, like, omnipotent kind of being. Right. And then there's the phenomenal you who feels things. And there are many examples of ways in which we cannot coherently bridge the two things, the things we feel and the things we think. Uh, many works of art like Richard Serra are predicated on exploring this disjunction. Mm. It's a much more central part of our lives, but the culture that we live in has gotten very proficient at ironing out and hiding any kind of inconsistency between the thinking you and the feeling and experience, experiential you. So, so there are the two buildings. Flip that. There are the two yous. And what we think VR can do is allow both of these me's, these, these two these two types of designers that they reside in my person to start to contribute to the design process. And we're developing a methodology about that that has to do with a switching between one role and the other. And it's not as simple as saying we're switching the medium. Mm. It's way more profound than that. You're actually switching the cognitive pathway that you're using to make a decision. Your entire being, and I mean that philosophically, just just flips to the other thing. So that's that's the second thing I would add. And the third thing that we are also experimenting with that's very, very interesting, is actually allowing clients to change things in VR. So not just understand the building better that we have designed as architects, but we're discovering a space of choice that does make sense. Of course, we are not letting people move structural walls around. We're not letting them make decisions that they're not equipped to make. But there is a space of choices that they are equipped to make. So we've not just, we, we've been not only observing them walk around and react verbally to a building that we've designed, we've been observing them moving things around. So you're giving them agency over some level of authorship in the design process by doing that. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so so our tool has been completely turning upside down our work as designers in the design process like it's been almost a rational and emotional roller coaster in exploring who we are as designers and the many faces of ourselves 
end as we as we unfold ourselves in the create creative process it has turned upside down the traditional relationship between the architect and the client that whole dynamic is very very different now and we're just at the very start of this investigation but for all of this to to be possible it was really crucial that we 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 had the the, the ability to code these, these things ourselves and that we were not a team of architects working with a team of software developers, but that we were ourselves coding architects. So we could seamlessly have an observation about the creative process and then quickly code something to check that or enforce that or, or have the tool to further explore that. Wow. It makes me think of uh, something that I used to talk about a lot as a as a senior designer, which was you know, you hear as a designer in a in a firm, other people say, "Oh, you've got the fun job. You get to design things. It's so fun." The way that I would frame that very differently was to be vulnerable, to put your work up on the wall and have other people tear it down. Like we all went through this in school which was the crit and the potential to be to have the work that you are emotionally involved with completely shredded. <laughs> and everybody's had different levels of experience with that on, on many different projects, I'm sure. So for some people, it, it doesn't go that way, right? And, and maybe you're in a sole practitioner position and you're your own worst critic and, and therefore like you're, but you still have to be vulnerable. And what you're talking about where you're to, to go to that level where your clients are making the decisions in there, you have to have a level of vulnerability to to allow that, number one, and to enable it, number two, and to accept it. That's that's interesting way to to take this. Because yeah, like giving with with great power comes great responsibility. And so I'm sure part of it is when clients are making decisions about options or they are moving things around, there's also this kind of facilitative coaching going on, knowing what you know as an architect and bringing your experience and your everything that you know about how buildings go together. There's, there's layers of ripple effects that those choices have. It's not just like, we're just moving this wall. It's like, okay, well, what's in that wall? Like you said, you don't let them move structure around, but it, it could have implications on lots of different things. And that takes a certain level of, I don't know, allowance, acceptance on your part to to enable that to happen. Yeah, well, it's it's changing a lot of things. So we have clients that also do things on their own without us being there. Well, this is like every architect. How many architects wait? A client comes to them and says, "I've drawn something up. I just want you to to model it, or I just want you to hardline it." Right? This happens all the time. You're, I know you're talking about it from a different point of view, but I think a lot of people can can relate to that. <laughs> so we we've had a we've had a company come to us because they were extremely unhappy with their architect. They were trying to plan a new production hall and there was a lot of specialized knowledge about how things had to be arranged in there that their engineers knew. And the engineers kept trying to communicate the spatial relationships that, you know, were related to that specific knowledge about how things work to the team of architects, the architects kept sketching things and like getting things wrong, or they would fix some things and getting, getting other things wrong. So these people were fed up. They, they were just not, they just could not find an efficient way to, to bridge the, their knowledge and get it into the architect's hand. And they came to us saying, look, we just want to do it ourselves. But we can't train all of our head of departments and engineers into how to use SketchUp or something else. It just takes us too long. Like, we don't want to learn that. Can, can we use your tool to do it in VR so we can just move things ourselves and then we, we send the model back to you and then you can draft it, you know, and check things. And so we, we gave them an outline of the building. We set a structural grid that could not move. We, we made sure all the, the placement and everything was, was right. And then we gave them a kit of, of parts. We modeled the machinery that they needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have the builds. So, so they, are, they are designing and placing things themselves. Interesting. So, so later on, when, 
when they don't like a decision that they made, <laughs> do you have conversations about that up front? Because, you know, it's, it's one thing to get mad at an architect for the way that they did things, but can you get mad? Do they get mad at themselves in the future <laughs> for the decisions that they made? Yeah, there's a lot of, again, a lot of responsibility embedded into that. We help them when they get stuck. Yeah. So, and and we said so in in some cases we suggest better solutions, but not in the technical areas, mm. not what where all the machinery is, because we don't understand the special requ- the spatial requirements of what's going on there. So actually, they're much better than us at doing that, and they're also using. The, the VR build that we gave them to basically run simulations. So they get everyone from every department to just run through it and pretend that they're working on the particular piece that they're working on. And that's how they catch spatial mistakes or misalignments. Which could never happen in, in 2D, right? Um, so, so actually, the traditional team of architects is out. Yeah. And... I told this story to two architects friends of mine that don't talk to me anymore. Uh, <laughs> wow. That's, so it's quite serious, it's quite actually, emotional. for a lot of architects. Yeah. Their reaction was identical. They said to me, no, Andrea, this is our job. This is what we've been trained to do. But but the client came to you because they were so... like. It's interesting to think about it because because on one hand, yeah, you can say this is our job, but you're still waiting for someone to choose you to do it. And if they're not going to choose you, they're going to choose someone else. Let's say I think there, there are changes happening right now in the way we do things that architects might need a while to wake up. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of them, especially... The big companies are so focused right now on making sure that VR fits in existing workflows mm-hmm. because they can't really afford to like completely turn their workflows up upside down. Whereas our company is completely predicated on that. We've started it so we can experiment with workflows that are upside down. But I do think they are perhaps missing bigger potentials of this technology. Which, which is things like this, like let clients might want to do things <laughs> um, and that might be a big change. Yeah. And so, but this really is your value proposition is that you guys are coding architects, like you said. And so you're actually able to build the tools to do what you need them to do or to do the experiments that you want to do. And lots and lots of architects are not, like you said, they're not set up for that. That would have to completely upend the way that they currently do business. And so I guess like if if this is so great, how how is the adoption gonna happen? How do people wake up to this? Is it is it just by or or are they just gonna go away if it doesn't happen? Like I and I'm sure it's somewhere in the middle. It's not like every firm needs to be built on VR like you guys are. They don't need to completely upend it, but maybe they meet it somewhere in the middle. I'm just wondering where where you think where does this go? Obviously, you guys are, you're the innovator, you're the 2.5% at the very beginning of the bell curve, right? You're the innovator type. And then you've got the early adopters, which there's firms that are integrating VR. But most of our profession sits on the other end of that bell curve, the the late adopters, you know, the the late majority to the late adopters, to the laggards. (laughs) Let's take a moment and talk about the sponsor of this episode. Enscape is a leading real-time rendering and virtual reality tool for the global AEC market. It plugs directly into your modeling software, giving you an integrated design and visualization process. With Enscape, you can render in real-time and walk stakeholders through your rendered model with incredible ease. Now buildings can be experienced long before they're built. And I have to add here that it's fun to use. Seriously, you cannot underestimate this. It's what makes this tool so amazing. This is something that most CAD and rendering programs can't claim. It democratizes your ability to create beautiful renderings at any time during the design process and use it as a tool to make valuable decisions during design. And as my friend Clifton Harness of TestFit says, it's one of the few well-established companies open to innovating in AEC. 
And you can see the outcome of this, where his company recently showed off how they were able to take advantage of the new Enscape SDK to incorporate the real-time renderer with TestFit. More than 200,000 unique monthly users from over 150 countries use Enscape to envision better designs. Don't be left out. To learn more or sign up for a free 14-day trial, visit enscape3d.com slash trxl today. That's enscape3d.com slash trxl. So my position on this is maybe a bit unconventional. I think until now, until maybe five, five years, 10 years ago, we've been dealing with the following situation. Okay, we're architects. We, there's new tech coming, coming up all the time. We need to be smart and figure out how we use this new tech. And sometimes it fits into what we do. Sometimes it revolutionizes what we do. And we just need to be brave enough and just embrace it and go for it. I think that's over. I think that's yesterday. I think right now the changes we're dealing with are so deep and fundamental on so many levels. I mean, think about what I was telling you earlier. It, when I designed this thing, um, I'm another me. It's given me a new me. So this, this new wave of new, new technologies like VR and AI, they're way more profound. They, the, the ramifications cover not just industries, but like who we are, how, we, how it feels to be a designer, how it feels to be a human being. It's changing those kind of stuff if you really take the time to engage with it and ask the right kind of questions. So I believe we are past anything that relies on old definitions. I think even the category architecture and architect is yesterday. Mm. I have a hard time using the word architect to define myself. Um, that is what I do. That is what I am. That's what I was trained to do. That's what I'm licensed in. Um, I think it's just irrelevant anymore. So it's things are changing. Categories are changing. Who we are and what we do is is changing. It's all shifting right now. I have stopped talking and I dare say caring about the profession of architecture, not because I've stopped talk, I've stopped talking and caring about buildings and design, because that's what I live for every day, buildings and design, and how do we improve that, and how does that relate to who we are as human beings. But the way we define this word right now, it's just time to drop it and move on and just rethink things at a much more profound level. So you're playing a different game, a new game. Yeah, interesting. I love it. I love. <laughs> I love how matter of fact you are about it uh, on this as well. Because so I, I was at a a tech conference, a tech plus conference, obviously for the building industry, and Katera was there, and Katera is now defunct. That doesn't mean that there wasn't anything valuable that came out of it. I mean, obviously, lots of startups fail, and there's still amazing lessons to be learned from from those. And there was an architect from Katera presenting at. That this conference, and they were they were talking about a specific workflow that they had developed around cross laminated timber. So it was a pretty specific thing. It wasn't like their the strategy for verticalization. It wasn't all that stuff. It was it was just like one thing. And they're presenting basically to a room full of technologists in architecture, and many architects, licensed architects like you, sitting in the audience. And one of the questions that came up during the Q and A was like, "What about the architects? If Katera is going to do all this stuff?" that's basically delivering building as product around their kit of parts and a total turnkey solution, you know, right? Trying to be complete, you know, from, from design to delivery, they do it all. And somebody said, what about architects? What do you guys see about architects? And I, and I'm getting the same feeling from you, which is, and he didn't say this, he didn't say, we don't care about architects, but that was clearly the answer was like, what do you mean? We're, we're doing this. You're, you're talking about that. These are two completely different things. And, and the person asking the question, what about architects, is how do we fit into this future or this now? How do we fit into it? And what they're saying is, we're playing a different game. This is something else. It's not trying to be that. It's not even trying to bring you along. It's not even trying to provide a future for you as a profession. We're going a different direction. And we're kind of forging that path. It sounds to me like that's what you're saying. 
Yeah, in a way, yes. So uh, what we do is 100% about buildings. So I'm said designing buildings, building buildings, real buildings, working with clients to get bu- real buildings done. Yeah. It's irrelevant for me whether this path is architecture or not, whether people who call themselves architects are on board or not. It's a direction that's very clear to us and very exciting. And it's what is demanded of us by the historical enormity of of what's going on in the world right now and how monumental these new technologies are. Do you want people to come along this journey with you? <laughs> so my, my question is like, do, do you have any sense of responsibility or openness to, I mean, obviously you're carrying a flag, but I don't, I, I don't yet have a sense is, is it just for you? Or is it for a movement that you're leading? And are you welcoming other people to come along? Or is this, this is really like what separates you from everybody else? I would love people to come along. I think, I do believe that the journey will be as revelatory and amazing for other people as it has been for myself. And because I believe that, then I absolutely want people to come along because I want to show this to other people. And you can't design all the buildings, <laughs> right? Like there's, the world needs a lot more buildings for a lot of reasons, and it needs buildings to be transformed to other uses. And, and what you're saying, I think, more is the process by which that happens. You've chosen an, a different new way to do that, and you are welcoming for others to come along. And so now I wonder... Are you, are you helping enable other people to do that? Are you building tools? Like you are building tools. Are you building tools for more than just you? Yes, yes, we are. And we are trying extremely hard to make sure we have the financing we need to release this as a tool for the public. Mm-hmm. And we are planning and already have secured some finance from like some uh, public funds to release a more a full program that will that will include a product people can use and many other things to help them understand what this is about but when it comes to this particular topic of having other people try this at least for me it's actually not about buildings it's about people so i would say yes the kind of We've we've seen many changes that just relate to the building as an object, you know, that comes out of this because because this journey is so different. But what's most appealing to me and 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 the reason why I I do think other people should try and be open to this is more of a sense of a personal transformation. Mm-hmm. I know this sounds a bit out there, but this whole the other building, the other me, the whole magic that happens in your in your head when you engage inside the design process, inside the creative process with with yourself, uh, but but using these kind of tools, it's really phenomenal. So what 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 gets me more excited than the actual buildings when it comes to community is actually this this sense of personal transformation, and you've. You've explained a little bit of the wow and the magic that people feel when they're eventually there. Mm-hmm. Imagine taking that to the next level and actually discovering, okay, what are, who am I in this new medium? What are my powers here? Um, how do I engage with space making in this medium where maybe I can fly, maybe I can go all sci-fi and, and, and arrange walls with my hands i mean that's going a little bit out there but it's totally possible we're doing some of that so that's actually at the core first about you and what's your potential and who you are in that medium and then about the building and what you can do so tongue-in-cheek here but the final building is is not as cool as that (laughs) the magic is over at that point (laughs) that but you're actually talking about the process that people go through in the transformation that they're experiencing, becoming a creator, 
and like in many in many cases, if, especially if you're talking about a layman or a client, right, who doesn't is not trained as an architect, you're empowering them to become a creator of sorts and and have special powers like you're talking about, and that gives them an experience that they may or may not have ever had. Chances are not. And by experiencing that and you enabling that, you got you started to create a relationship there and a and a community of people who have experienced something together. Yeah, I'm I'm talking about designing the design but also cognitively designing the designer. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> and Interesting. all the studies coming out of labs around the world trying to understand what's going on in our brains in VR mm-hmm. as, we, as we engage not just with our visual cortex in VR, but our motor cortex points to very interesting things. So there's, there's definitely a rewiring happening. So yes, I'm proposing that this tool changes the design of the building, but also, you know, changes the designer. So, so before people were intimidated by the technology, but I think what you're talking about is way more intimidating, <laughs> right? It, that this really forces someone to get out of their comfort zone and be open to not only these experiences, but the potential transformation that could happen and having to live with that. That's a very intimidating thing. I think some people will be more naturally attracted to this kind of proposition than sure. others. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've, not to this extent, but we've dealt with this with CAD being introduced in offices. We did see a split between people who said, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm going to stick with pen and paper. And that there was a rift happening and, and some great designers never made the jump, made yeah, it to CAD. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting to think about. <laughs> that I'm interested to hear kind of what, I've had a few VR experiences that were like next level. I don't know if you're familiar with the the company, The Void. They have a couple of outposts over here on the West Coast. And I, I experienced one version of that. My kids did did a version of it with like a Star Wars kind of a theme. And I did a version with like a Marvel theme. And the level of immersion is totally next level. Because it, because of the feedback that you get when you're in there and because of the additional layers of reality that they kind of, or non-reality that they blast you with while you're in there. So you're completely untethered. You're actually walking through space and it's using tracking and, and different ways of doing feedback, like a, a haptic vest, you know, when you, when you get shot and you feel it or, or like a, a jet engine turns on and you feel heat because in the real space they actually turn on a thing that throws heat and you can feel a breeze and these layers of reality that they're infusing into a a virtual reality experience i mean is that where we're headed do you feel like with with this kind of thing because to me like there there is an immersive visual experience that is kind of like the lowest level of vr but then there's all of these other layers that, that there's definitely a, like a space race kind of a feel going on. How immersive can we make it? Can we make it all of the immersive? What, what kinds of experiences have you had and, and where do you kind of see this going? So what you're describing is where we're now. Yeah. I think we're heading to much more exciting places. What you're describing still takes every detail. Every detail has a reference in physical reality. There are some people, not many, myself included, that are working on looking at concepts of brain plasticity and trying to understand how quickly we can adapt to situations that do not have a correspondence in physical reality. Mm-hmm. We're slowly trying to introduce actually some of those experiments into the design tool we're doing because you could have superpowers in, in all senses of the word. There are absolutely experiences, again, this word experiences that i have experienced myself oh sweet treachery that go (laughs) exactly that go beyond anything that has even a mild correspondence to physical reality interesting so i heard you say earlier i kind of want i wanted to go back on this and i I forgot about it a minute ago but you said you want to make this available to people you didn't say i want to make this available to architects no. Right. 
And, and so you've talked about kind of this idea of giving your clients the authority and the agency to make design decisions in the space themselves with potential guidance or, or not. Can you talk about that for a minute? Like you, you specifically said people, you didn't say architects. I, this gets back to my point earlier about Katera and, and not, you know, this is a new reality, a different reality, a different game that they're playing. I, not necessarily reality is the right word. It's, it's more about the direction that you've decided to go. So why did you say it like that? I definitely welcome architects. There are some architects very interested in what we're doing um, yeah. that are testing our application. I I just don't believe in this category anymore. All architects are people, but not all people are architects. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not it's not relevant to me whether mm. people who respond to this are architects or not. And I will not spend any time trying to convince an architect of the usefulness of this thing. Do I find a lot of people in the architecture community with whom I can discuss the fact that cognitively designing the designer is architecture or it's what our profession should be talking about? No. Am I worried about that? Not at all. Am I trying to make the architecture community see these things? Trying to put this within the umbrella of of the architectural discipline in any way would be nice, but I'm not going to spend my time trying to to go necessarily in that direction. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm wondering outside industries that have an influence on you. Can you point at or give examples of the things that are inspiring you and influencing you to move in the directions that you're moving? Because it, it sounds like it is outside of this profession, right? So where is it coming from? So there are two fields that I'm pursuing. I'm having discussions with people doing research in these fields. Um, one of them is um, cognitive science and neuroscience, uh, specifically the labs and the people using VR as a methodology to research those things and to try to understand what's happening in the brain and, and philosophy. I'm, I've, I'm trained in philosophy. I've read philosophy since I can remember. And I, part of my work is to also try to frame what is happening, frame what the, t- the role of technology in society, frame my work in terms of concepts. Concepts that can be discussed, concepts that someone can agree or disagree with. But it's very important to me that I lay things out clearly, Mm -hmm. that they are structured in a certain way, that the assumption um, that that I'm using certain assumptions um, about what is my definition for space, what is my definition for the mind, what's my definition for the brain, that I I tell people what those assumptions are, and then I let them take that wherever they want to take it. I'm very bothered by the the lack of a theoretical scaffolding in a lot of discussions. I think that's very necessary to understand the world. Uh, it's very necessary when you propose anything truly new, and it's quite absent at, at the very deep level in both tech and architecture. Your your approach here, and it seems to me like you're really honing in on the communication aspect of it. Like you said, you have to be able to lay it out clearly. To me, that is that is 100% a leader's job to f- figure out ways to communicate clearly. And, and as you're as you're talking through that, I get a strong sense. Like not only are is this conceptual and theoretical and abstract and there's there's a lot going on here there's a lot of influence and there's a lot of potential outcomes and you probably change directions all the time but the way that you communicate it is it's fascinating because i i'm totally on board with with what you're saying so i i just wanted to say that because it's uh it's very impressive the the level at which of of the depth that you're going into this but also able to bring it to the surface so that people can understand it and experience it and have a dialogue about it. Because I, I agree, that is important to move forward. And you can't only do it alone. You, you need to have other people have an awareness and hopefully an inclusion into helping decide where it goes. 
I'm using this with two end goals. So the f- firstly, I want to say um, one battle that I'm fighting almost every day is, and it's a monumental battle, but I feel like we it's just work we have to do. This this notion that this this lack of understanding of what's the role of philosophy and the humanities, this crisis we're going through with the closing of the humanities departments all over the Western world. And like, what's the job of that? And what's the job of science? So there are some people that are trying to bridge the two that are like philosophers working with, with neuroscientists to try to frame things. So it's about framing issues. It's not about researching mm-hmm. and the the scientific method. It's about framing what's happening. That's not what the scientific method does. The scientific method cannot frame what's happening. If you read 18th, 19th century philosophy, like Kant or Husserl, the kind of thinking structure, the the type of the type of uh, logical structures that they've used to penetrate a matter. Mm-hmm are mind-blowing. They're just brilliant and unbeatable. So I'm not looking at these philosophers for content. I'm looking at them for methodologies. It's like a model framework. And I'm actively, yeah, I'm actively teasing out the methodology that even someone like Kant used to discuss things that maybe are not pertinent anymore or not of specific interest to me. And then applying that to try to understand first for myself or to not to understand, but even to, to find a way to dig deeper into issues that we're dealing with right now as people and as society that are very, very hard to penetrate. Yeah. You know, you read these things, you, you work with certain tools and you feel like there's big, the big, big things happening, big, big changes. Uh, but then what, then what do you do next? You write the blog post. Great. You end with a catchy sentence, even better. But then does that really take you to the next level? Like, did you really put your finger on something? So I believe these logical structures that are available to us through philosophy and social sciences and the great thinkers could be used and applied to what's going on right now. So I'm, I'm trying to take that to, to try to frame and understand what I am observing in VR to try to understand things that are happening to myself and observations to tr- and and then and then the second part is then also using that to communicate because if 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 i c- certain things that i'm observing i'm having a hard time putting them in words sure. um i'm experiencing things that i'm not sure how to use any language to communicate but then these structures teach you how to tease things out and how to lay, lay, lay them clearly in front of someone. And it's not about being right or wrong. It's about being a structure other people can grab onto and try to take apart or build on top of it. And then navigating, I would assume, how does that fit into today's society where we're constantly bombarded with noise and our evolution is dependent upon filtering all of that out and only focusing on the urgent and the important as much as possible. And so how do you kind of, like you said, break through that wall to, to do that in a meaningful way? It seems to me like forging any kind of pathway down a new pathway is incredibly, incredibly difficult. You have to have hit many obstacles along the way. Yes. And, and I, the, I and I always go back to these two things: the structures of thinking in philosophy and research that's coming out of cognitive science and neuroscience, because that's I also need that to balance out the philosophy part. So I don't build structures in the quote unquote wrong direction. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, it's not about I don't want to build fantasy structures. That's also a great career, it's not mine. Mm-hmm. I do want to anchor them in in cognitive science principles, you know, and what we know about the brain, the little that we know, you know, at least I'm using that a bit to, to, to guide myself. Now that I come up with some theory about why I'm observing certain kind of effects when I'm in VR doing certain things. And that's completely inconsistent with, you know, with how how 
how the brain actually works. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you talked about bringing it back to reality because that's where it, it should end up. And that's I know that's what you're focused on, right? Is creating real buildings, like you said earlier, and using this kind of as a means to get there. So maybe we we can end with this, and it's what are your favorite spatial experiences in the real world that you've had that maybe they've come from this process, but maybe they haven't. I don't, I think it, you know, just as architect to architect right now, what comes to mind immediately of some of your favorite spatial experiences and what made them special? Well, there's one that's just maybe the only, there, there, I only have one answer to this, the sea floating in the middle of the sea and not seeing the shore, mm-hmm. just, just being at water level and just seeing an endless expanse of water. That for me is always the most surreal experience in physical reality. That puts me in a place of mind that's, well, quote unquote real, because I'm not hallucinating. But then I can't I can't wrap my my mind around it. So so it's it's that door, right? Where we are such rational creatures where, well, I'm here, I understand everything unless I'm mentally ill or I've taken some hallucinogenic things. There's no reason why I would not feel completely in control of this room and everything in it. Mm-hmm. But then float on the surface of water in the sea for a few minutes and you will have a very hard time understanding who you are and where you are. It makes me think of those sensory deprivation tanks where it's body temperature, so you don't feel anything except for yourself. And you're really like, the, the, the lights are off, there's no light, you can't feel anything, and you are left with your own thoughts. And to deal with <laughs> yourself, I can. that's very hard for a lot of people to have to, to be forced to be in that position. It's a little, it's kind of crazy making, I'm sure. Yeah, that's a fantastic it's, answer. It's the border. <laughs> Go ahead. It's, it's the line, is the thin line between being sure in our rationalizing powers and being present and here and in control of reality and other aspects of ourselves that, you know, we are well insulated against by culture normally. Yeah. I was going to say my one of my favorite types of experiences, which is, I think, along the same lines, is, is like, it's just riding my mountain bike down a trail very fast. And this is a spatial experience. Like, I'm traveling through space by means that are my own, but also kind of augmented by the mechanics of the bicycle and gravity. and But being forced to be so present, you are in, like you're saying, you there's a there's your touch and go with being in control and and I feel like I am totally in control and yet not in control at all and this is became vividly clear one day when I crashed really bad okay totally out of my control didn't see it coming it happened so fast I don't even know what happened but but to think that you are so present and you're flying down this trail dodging roots and rocks and there's ruts and there's all these things and yet at the same time enjoying it like it's it's very different type of spatial experience than than we're talking about with kind of day-to-day architectural spatial experiences i think it's fascinating that you you brought up that as your one answer to this question so well thank you so much this was a fascinating conversation and i i think that there's so many other things we could talk about. Maybe you'd be up for a, a, a round two sometime, but this has been this has been really great. And and it gives us, I think, a lot of things to think about. And especially kind of your point of view about the future of our profession. And and I think it it comes up from time to time, but does it deserve to exist? Like I think every business should be able to answer that question. Like as designers who design things, we have to take that responsibility to ask ourselves, does it deserve to exist? Does the work that we're doing deserve to exist? But I think we also have to apply that at a, at a larger level to our practices, to our profession, to our industry, 
Um, and we need to be doing work that deserves to exist. So I think that you've sparked some really interesting ideas and, and this has been a fantastic conversation. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for, for the great questions and conversation. I, I definitely phrased many things in a much better way than I did in the past uh, because you pointed me that way and inspired me. So thank you so much for that. Where can people follow along with what you're doing? And uh, I just, just, I'll include all the links that you talk about in the show notes for this episode so that people won't have to like stop their car and write them down. But, but if you could point people in a direction to learn more about you and Numina and what you guys are doing, that would be fantastic. I am most active in terms of conversations and an exchange of ideas on Twitter. So that would be number one. It's Andrea with two E's VR. But if you search for my name, you will find me. And then the second best place would be LinkedIn. Great. And your firm is Numina. And uh, I will include links to all of those on the show notes for this episode. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to have this really wonderful conversation today. Thank you so much. Thank you to Enscape for their support of this episode. Visit Enscape3D.com slash TRXL today for a free 14-day trial. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out and, of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.